Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Well, we just sung about some powerful stuff, didn't we? I mean, we just sung a song about Jesus being our redemption. Then we sung over and over again that you are here, and then we finished by singing that He is our living hope. And we believe that here at Bible Center. At the end of the day, we're not saved because of what you have done or what I have done. We have the opportunity to be saved because of what he has done. He is the one who offers redemption, which means being pulled out of slavery because of what he did for us on the cross, something that we couldn't do for ourselves. And we are excited about that. Uh, We recognize that he is here with us, that he's not distant. It wasn't some transaction that took place on a hill and then he left us to figure out things on our own. He is here with us. And because of that reality, that eternal reality, he is indeed our living forever hope. So it was fun to sing the gospel. I hope you worship this morning. Those are beautiful truths that we sung, beautiful truths to speak back to the Lord. Well, if we haven't met, I'm Pastor Mike. It's nice to see you this morning. Uh, I've been here for about two and a half years, my family and I, and we are really growing closer and closer to West Virginia. I'm not afraid of mountains anymore. I'll be honest, when I first got here, they freaked me out. Uh, but like we've grown to love them. Like on the weekends, I'll go hiking and we'll go hiking. Just enjoy the mountains and the scenery and the beauty of what God has made. So I just wanna let you know, cause some of you seem concerned about me, but I'm doing okay, we're doing okay. We're really enjoying calling West Virginia our home. Here at the church, I'm in charge of groups and I also help run discipleship. So I kind of help shape the things that shape us here spiritually. And I love that. I've loved working at Bible Center. I love working with all of you. Uh, It's something I'm consistently thankful to when I talk to the Lord. Uh, This morning, what to expect? We're in our Ephesians series. We're in the second half half of chapter four in the book of Ephesians. There's a lot in the second half of chapter four. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna move into it and we're gonna spend quite a bit of time talking about what it means to put off the old self and put on the new self. It's not an easy subject. So we're gonna take our time. We're gonna go deep into what that really means to put off our old self and put on the new self. And then we're gonna kind of come up out of that and we're gonna spend some time talking about what it looks like to live out of that new self. There's some really practical things that the Bible calls us to be doing to live out of that new self. So we'll spend some time being very practical near the end of the sermon. So if you would, if you have your Bible or maybe your Bible app, we're gonna be in verses 17 through 19 of chapter four in the book of Ephesians. We'll also have it up on the screen. And as Paul here describes the old self, he's going to use the word Gentile. And when he uses the word Gentile there, it's not just referencing people who aren't Jewish. In this context, when he says Gentile, he just means anyone and everyone who has not yet placed their faith in Jesus. And this description, I want you to catch this, this description isn't just of those people 2,000 years ago who didn't know Jesus. What's gonna happen in this passage is is he's gonna say, this description also describes you who have placed your faith in Jesus. At any point when you're not living out of your new self that God created you to be, our tendency is to go back to our old self. And this is a description of that old self that we tend to go to when we're not walking with the Lord. So let's look at it together. Verse 17 says this. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you are no longer just that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, 
and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So I underlined some of that stuff on purpose. I want you to notice that the description of the old self isn't so much a description of what they do, it's a description of who they are on the inside, in their internal world, what their mind does, what their heart does, the fact that it's callous, that it's darkened, that there's impurity internally, there's futility in their mind, there's hardness in their heart. So primarily, this old self issue is an internal issue. There is a desperately sick and sinful heart in the old self. It's a heart that suppresses the truth of God and says no to Jesus. So instead of being filled with God, the heart becomes filled with other things. Chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, Paul now transitions and says, so that's the old self. But this is what the new self looks like, and I want you to put off that old self and put on this new self. This is how he says it. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former way of life, that you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, or another translation would say, deceitful desires. Verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and this is a commandment, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, in the holiness of the truth. So we're commanded here. It's not just a suggestion. It's a command. Put off that old self. Put on that new self. Now, I've seen this illustrated several different ways. One of them, and I'm pretty sure I did this at one point, not here, but in another church, is you wear an undershirt and you wear like a red shirt. And you say, all you have to do is just take off that old self, take off your red shirt, and you put on a blue shirt and say, you just put on the new self. Like it's that simple, like you're changing your clothes. I know there was a period of time when I tried to in the mornings, whenever I get dressed for my day, I would literally pray, Lord, just help me put on my new self as I put on my clothes. What I have found through the years is it's just deeper than that. There's more to it than that. It's not as simple as just taking one shirt off and putting the other shirt on. And he hints at it, okay? If you notice when he describes the old self and he describes the new self, there's inward descriptions. The old self is being described as being corrupted by deceitful desires. There's an internal world issue there, not an external world issue, an internal world. And when the new self is described, he says, being made new in the attitude of your minds. So it's not so much an outward working of the old self and new self. It's an inward transformation, an inward change that is necessary. So it's a lot more than just changing your shirt. Though that illustration is really easy, it doesn't always work. And I have found myself frustrated from that. So I want to go a little deeper with you. This concept, this idea of us having an old self and a new self that kind of fight against each other isn't new, and it isn't only found here in Ephesians. In the book of Colossians, you see the same thing. There's an old self and there's a new self. They just don't get along, okay? There's a war between the two of them. Uh, you're also going to see in the book of James, it talks about the internal world, that the reason why you and I sin is not because of the temptation outside of us, it's because of the desires inside of us. So when you see something outside of you, it's the gunk that's still inside of you that causes you to want something that you shouldn't have, to do something you shouldn't do. Romans chapter six and seven, the entire chapters, 
In Romans chapter six, it talks about the old man, the old man that still lives inside of you and inside of me. It's the exact same concept as this old self. And then it says that in Romans seven, the old man and the new man are fighting against each other ongoingly, all the time. There's a battle, there's a war taking place. I'm the oldest of three kids. I'd meet myself and two younger brothers. There was this ongoing battle between me and my two brothers. I was the oldest, so I was bigger, so that helped me. They were closer in age and they'd team up. So there was two against one, so they had some advantages and I had some advantages. I had gone roller skating with my class and for some reason, I fell down. If I went roller skating today, I'd probably fall down again, but I fell down and when I wiped out, I fell backwards, put both hands down, I busted my wrists. Like I didn't break them, but I couldn't use them for several weeks. So the two younger brothers realized that I was hampered. I wasn't gonna be able to perform at my best. Uh, so I'm talking, my one younger brother calls me into the living room. He starts talking to me, so I'm talking to him. All of a sudden, my younger brother, I hear him running down the hall. So I turn around, not knowing my other brother gets down on his hands and knees. So my youngest brother comes up and hits me in the chest, which normally doesn't do too much, but he's behind me. So I trip over him and I can't catch myself, right? Because my wrists are messed up. So I go like this, I just hit the ground. So I hit the ground on my side, I start to roll over to my back, and my youngest brother, who I've performed many WWF moves on, he's been body slammed, he maybe was drop kicked, there maybe have been some you know, off the top rope moments in our relationship. He had run up to the top of the couch, he jumps off the couch, and as I roll over, his foot is this far from my eye, and he kicks me in the eyeball. Like he literally, I'm on the ground and he kicks me in the eyeball. And they both get up and run out of the living room. I'm crying, I mean, it hurt. I mean, top rope, drop kick to the eyeball, they don't even do that in the WWF. So I just got whooped by my two younger brothers. My mom walks in and I'm screaming and she said, what happened? And I said, I just got kicked in the eye by my younger brother, I just got kicked in the eye. And she just shakes her head because how could a little brother jump up and kick someone in the eye? So she shook her head and she walked out. So there was this ongoing battle between me and my brothers, okay? I wanna give you a visual image about this battle between your old self and your new self. Your old self is always trying to kick you in the eyeball. This eye's still a little messed up, like it always just shuts all the time and I can't get it to open all the way. I think they broke a nerve. That, that was extra, you didn't need to know that. Plus, they're both six foot tall now, so I don't mess with them anymore. But there's this ongoing battle. So I want to give you that word picture and here's a poem that's just another picture of this battle. It says this, two natures, Beat within my chest. The one is foul, the other is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. Did you catch that at the end? There's two natures within you, just like the Bible says. Which one is gonna be the stronger of the two natures? The one I feed will dominate. If I've got two pets and I give one half the food and I give the other one twice the amount of food, the bigger one, will eventually dominate. If I have two bonfires and I drop lots of wood on one and I just don't put any wood on the other, this one will be bright and strong. This one will eventually die off. Which nature are you feeding? Based upon what you're looking at, what you're talking about, what you're, who you're surrounding yourself with, the conversations you're choosing to have. You're always feeding one nature or the other, okay? And the one you feed more eventually will dominate. So your habits, your decisions, the people you spend time with, all those things matter. So Peter then, 
takes this conversation up a notch. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which do what? They wage war against your soul. So it's more than just an inconvenient conflict. The Bible says it's war. Peter says, be on your guard. It is war. We cannot lessen the impact of this word. He's saying there are missiles being launched. There is a battle at hand. There is a little red dot in the middle of your chest, and there's a sniper ready to pull the trigger to take you out. This is war. We cannot lessen what the author is saying. There's a battle taking place all the time. Your sinful desires are never going to wave the white flag and say, we give up, you win. That will never happen in this lifetime. So this war that we're talking about is a war or a battle between desires. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to go a little bit deeper into what the Bible means when it talks about desires. I want to suggest to you that God has intentionally made you with unquenchable desires. God in his divine wisdom and with intentionality has made you with unquenchable desires. You have this ongoing desire to be accepted. You have this ongoing unquenchable desire to be loved, to have value, to have purpose, to have significance. We can see this even in some of our physical desires. You can have a huge dinner tonight, and when you wake up tomorrow, you're what? Hungry again, right? You can have a huge glass of water at lunch. By the time dinner rolls around, you are thirsty again. You can receive some love from some people, and you're still going to want to be loved even more, accepted even more. They are unquenchable desires. The only thing that can handle unquenchable desires is an infinite well. Is an infinite well. Here's a takeaway thought I want you to remember today. We were made by an infinite God for an infinite God. You and I were made by an infinite God for an infinite God. So the fact that you have unquenchable desires and I have unquenchable desires, we have to go to an infinite well. God is our infinite well. God is the only one who can satisfy these desires that he gave us. He gave us these desires that we would only be able to have them met when we come to him. So if we go somewhere else, we're going to be disappointed. It's not going to meet our actual needs. It's in him and him alone that we find fulfillment. It's in him and him alone that we find satisfaction. A guy named Augustine hundreds of years ago said this, and it goes right along with what we're talking about. Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find ourselves in thee. God has designed us for himself, and we will continue to be restless until we find ourselves in him. That's how he designed this relationship to work. If we do not get our needs and our desires met in him, we will go somewhere else to find those desires to get met. We'll find someone else, something else, some other situation to get those met. Unfulfilled desires don't just create a hole. They create a vacuum, a powerful vacuum that's drawing anything and everything possible into its spot to fulfill and to meet those needs, those ongoing needs that we have all the time. 
in our search for love and acceptance, we can find ourselves in very strange relationships with friends, with family, with the other gender, with our bodies, with social media, with food, with our pets, with sports. When we go looking for love and acceptance and significance in the wrong places and in the wrong way, those needs, those desires will not get met. So we end up looking at them and using them in strange ways. In our pursuit for security, if we don't feel secure and God's designed us to want security, if we don't find that, we're gonna find new friends. We're gonna get more insurance. We're gonna build taller fences. We're gonna get bigger guns. We're gonna make bigger bank accounts. We're gonna do whatever is necessary until we feel like we're secure. We can go to our career, not just as a blessing from the Lord, but a place where we find status, acceptance, and identity. We can go to our family. This is kind of a strange one, but think about it. If God has designed us to long for infinite love, and then we keep going to our family members, expecting them to meet that need, it sets up our family members for failure. We are designed by God to first get our needs for infinite love met with him, and then the overflow we experience with our family members, not the other way around. Otherwise, we turn our family into a substitute for God. And sometimes we'll even use our words to control circumstances and relationships just to try to get out of those things what we need and what we want. Our tendency is to move towards manipulation to try to create a world that satisfies these ongoing desires to meet these unending, infinite needs. I watched my grandmother who, this is the woman who took me to church. I came to know Christ in the church where she attended. She prayed for me every single day, loved Jesus. But even for her, she came out of in a very, very impoverished situation. She had literally almost nothing. So in her longing for security, she started struggling with stuff like saving every single container that came into her house. Styrofoam, and when you get a burger, you get a wrapper, she'd fold it up and she'd keep it. Yogurt cups, like she started moving in the direction of just keeping and holding on to absolutely everything that came into the home to make her feel more secure, okay? So she struggled with that, even though she loved Jesus. Myself, as a personal trainer, back in the days of the Hurricane Katrina, like 2005, I had a contract with a company. It was the largest privately owned company in Kentucky, and I was their personal trainer. I trained a big portion of the company and all their top executives, and I had just gone into the boardroom of the company and they said, we love what you're doing here. We're gonna keep you on for a long period of time. We're excited about this relationship. You can count on us. So my wife and I, who had an ever-growing family, needed a bigger home. So we bought a bigger home in light of this ongoing contract and this conversation. We buy the home. Weeks later, I remember this phone call. Like I can remember everything. It was sunny outside. I remember the chair I was sitting in. And they call me, this is right after Katrina hit, and Katrina devastated some companies, including this one. They said, we're cutting every extra that we have in our company. Unfortunately, that includes our fitness. So Mike, we won't be using you anymore. We thank you so much for what you did, but we're done. In one moment, I lost like 35% of my income, and I just bought a home based upon that 35% of my income. So I remember sitting there with the Lord, having that conversation saying, am I gonna freak out? Am I going to try to find security somewhere else? Or am I going to trust you to provide in this moment where I feel utterly overwhelmed? So we're going to be get hit with things throughout life that's going to challenge us. And the question is, do we go to our infinite well 
Or do we go to nervousness and fear and anxiety and try to find that in other things? So all the things I listed here, whether it's a contract with a company or a career or a family or your pets or food or friendships or family or all these things, these are all good things from the Lord. They're good things. And we're living in our new self. They're wonderful blessings from the Lord. If we're not getting our needs met from the Lord, these same things become substitutes for God. They become golden calves in our life. So instead of good things, they become golden calves. Instead of blessings from God, they become substitutes for God. Do you remember the golden calf back in Exodus? Moses had gone up on the mountain. He was gone for a period of time. The people started getting nervous. They went to Aaron and said, can you please make for us a golden calf? Sometimes I think we think we're better than them because they worshiped a cow made out of gold. When Aaron said, do you remember how the golden calf was made? Aaron looks at them and says, well, give me your rings, give me your earrings, and give me some of your gold and I'll make it for you. The golden calf was a molten image of their possessions. The golden calf was a molten image of their own possessions. They looked at what they had accumulated to them for themselves and they placed their faith in that wow, the golden calf doesn't seem so far away anymore, does it? They even looked at that calf and they said, you are the God who brought us out of Egypt. They looked at that calf and looked at it and gave credit for what God, the God of the universe had done and gave credit to the cow, which represented their possessions. You and I wake up every morning with this same struggle. You look at the man or the woman in the mirror, you look at your home and what you've provided for yourself, you get in your car and it's so easy to think, that you and I have provided for ourselves, that we're the ones that pulled ourselves up, pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps and we're taking care of ourselves. You and I worship golden calves all the time. All the time, we view our possessions and the work of our own hand as the way in which we've provided for ourselves and have taken care of ourselves. So when we're living out of our old self, substitutes, golden calves, when we're living out of our new self and we're seeing God as the most important being who can meet all of our needs, then they're just simply blessings and good things. And that's how they're designed to be taken and appreciated. We're supposed to live a life of thankfulness because we're living out of our new self. So how do we then put on this new self? How do we get our fill of God? How does he satisfy these unquenchable desires so we don't look outside of him for help, for assistance from our old self? What I want to suggest to you is that we have been, have, we've been designed and called into this holy, glorious pursuit of God. How do we put on our new self, Pastor Mike? I would suggest to you that we put on our new self by having a glorious pursuit of God himself. We're designed to do that. We wake up every morning needing purpose, needing acceptance, needing love, needing value, needing purpose. So we're designed to pursue him each day and every day, you are made for this pursuit. The saints of old have given us some great examples of what it looks like to pursue God. David, uh, so Pastor Ted came up and read Psalm 63, the first couple of verses. If you go a little farther down in verse eight, it says this, and I put it in the KJV for you. I just like the KJV in this verse. It says, my soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. Do you get the picture in your mind of what he's describing? David is being upheld by the right hand of God. 
But while he's being upheld by the right hand of God, David is pursuing the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul. So even though he's found security in God, the next step after security is a pursuit of the Lord with your whole being. You've provided security. Thank you so much. Now I want more. I want you. And the soul longs for God. The soul pursues God. God is infinite and he's huge, but he's also personal and he's designed us for this communion. Sometimes we think of the gospel as our finish line. Like once you place your faith in Christ and the Bible says you are saved from your sins, sometimes we think, boom, I just crossed the finish line. Actually in scripture, it says you've just started the race. You haven't crossed the finish line, you're just getting started. There's a great picture of this in Exodus chapter 33. So Moses and the Lord have been kind of arguing. God said, the people are so wicked that if I go with you into the promised land, I might just kill all of them. And Moses is like, what will they say about you if you kill your people? So God agrees that he's gonna go with them. And he says this, Moses says, you, God, have said, speaking of Moses, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. So Moses says out loud, God, I know we're good. God, you have said you have found favor with me and you're pleased with me. So what's Moses' response? My response, maybe sometimes your response is, well, if I'm good with God, then that's good enough. I'm good, I'm done. I'm gonna go do something now. That's not what Moses does. Catch what Moses does. He says, if you are pleased with me, then teach me your ways so that I may know you. If I'm good with you, then I'm gonna make a request. If we're okay, then here's what I want. I want more of you. Teach me your ways. Let me know more about you because just being secure in you is not enough. I want the whole thing. I want to know you more. Moses continues in chapter 33, verse 17. Moses pleads with God that he'll go up with them to the promised land. And then God says to him, I will do the very thing you've asked. Why? Because I'm pleased with you, Moses, and I know you, Moses, by name. When he says, Moses, I know you by name, he's saying, Moses, I know you completely. I know you totally. I know you personally. I know you intimately. I know everything about you, Moses. And again, it would be so easy for you, for me, for Moses to say, and that's all I need, Lord, just to know that I'm accepted. I've crossed the finish line. But Moses doesn't look at it that way. See what he says in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, it looks like, Lord, we've just started this race. And because we've just started this race, he says, Lord, now show me your glory. If we're good, if you're pleased with me, if you know me by name, then I wanna know you by name. I wanna know everything there is to know about you. I want to be intimately acquainted with your ways, your person, your thoughts, your emotions. Lord, I wanna know everything there is to know about you. Moses knows to see God face to face means his own personal death, but Moses doesn't care. He says, I wanna see your glory regardless of what it means to me. I want to know you. This is a picture of this glorious pursuit that we're called to take on, to go after with the Lord. Let's look at one more example. Paul echoes this same passion. In Philippians chapter three, verse eight, Paul says, I count all, all means all, I count 
all things to be loss in view of or in the perspective of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ. All this stuff I have, all these things that I've accomplished, you put them all together and you put an equal sign beside it. The total equal is rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus and being found in him. How do we look at our things? This pursuit should be so intense, so all-encompassing that the status of our stuff, the status of our relationships, the things that we have equal nothing in comparison to knowing a little bit more and then just a little bit more about the God who made us, created us, and sustains us to have a relationship with him every moment of every day. The more, the more, the more matters. Do you want more? Paul says, nothing else matters except for knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is the song of the saved. It's the chorus of this glorious pursuit. Are we singing it? When we start to think this way, when we start to live this way, then those desires, those deceitful desires, those sinful desires start to lose their power. That bonfire isn't getting any more wood. So it's starting to dim, starting to go down. We're starting to live out of our new self. That place where there was a vacuum, trying to fill it with something that made me feel significant, that made me feel love, that vacuum is filled with God himself. And it turns into a spring of life. Where no longer am I concerned about me being accepted. I know I'm accepted. And then I give people acceptance. I give people love because I'm living out of a wellspring of overflow instead of a vacuum of need. A.W. Tozer, who, if I were to list people who discipled me, I put A.W. Tozer on my list. He says this, I want deliberately to encourage this longing after God. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Isn't that a great picture? He waits to be wanted. The word I want you to kind of center yourself on, though, is the concept of complacency. Complacency is the enemy. And my goal here isn't to poke anyone in the eye. But if in the morning when you wake up, if there's no sense of battle, if there's no sense of pursuit, then you and I at that point have fallen into this thing called complacency. Because it is a war whether you acknowledge it or not. If you don't acknowledge it, you're probably already losing. Complacency is a deadly foe. And we so easily, in our old self, just fall into it again. And it becomes our go-to way of thinking. So what we need is we need the Lord to remind us that he wants to be wanted. He waits to be wanted. That we need more of him we're called back into this glorious pursuit. So what does it mean to put on our new self? It means that we're pursuing him with all of our heart, that we're no longer okay getting our desires and our needs met outside of him. Rather, we go to him by pursuing him to get our needs met in him and him alone. That's what it looks like to put on the new self. So I told you we're gonna go deep into that, right? We just did, huh? Um, that pushed me like, preaching that. I've had to preach that to myself all week. I've had multiple things come up in my life where I've just had to go back to the Lord saying, I'm not fighting. 
I'm not taking this battle seriously. So I want you to join with me in that, that we take it seriously. Let's move into the next part of the chapter. In the next part of the chapter, verses 25 through 32, there's a bunch of outward workings of the new self. Outward workings of the new self. So we said it's an inward transformation. It's an inward change, but eventually inward change leads to a change in what we say, a change in what we do, a change in the way we make decisions. And because of time, I won't have the ability to go through many of them, but let's just pick a couple to look at. Uh, Let's go to verse 28. Verse 28 says this, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So, So that he will have something to share with the one who has need. If you're living in your new self, one of the ways that you view the work that you do, it's not just to provide for yourself. If you're living in abundance in terms of your relationship with the Lord, with all of your needs, okay, your emotional needs, your needs for desires, um, at that point, you then work to take care of not just yourself and your family, but you work enough that you can take care of people in need. You go above and beyond to make sure there's enough extra to help the people around you. As West Virginians, we're not great at this. This isn't talking about you particularly, but if you look at this graphic, this, I found this stunning. When it comes to the labor force available to work, where on the far left there in blue, when it comes to the labor force available to work, only 53.6 of West Virginians choose to work. That means a huge percentage who could work is choosing not to work. So we're 50th out of 50. And we're not even close to number 49. We're not even close to number 48. So in West Virginia, we need to be reminded God has called us to work, not just for ourselves, but you work to the extent that you can take care of the people around you. Let's go to verse 29. If you're a mom or a dad or a grandparent, you probably know this verse and you probably use this verse to instruct your children or your grandchildren. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. We'll stop there. Let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth. Probably each of you have some sort of a word naughty list, right? Like some of you have like 10 words on your naughty list, words that you're just never going to say. Your kids aren't allowed to say them. If you hear them, you're going to stop from, you're going to stop that child, stop that grandchild from ever saying that word again. Some of you have three on your list, okay? It means you got a lot of freedom there. You say a lot of things that other people wouldn't say. Some of you have 23 on your list. Like, you have such a holy household. If somebody has to go to the bathroom, all they can do is this. Like, because they can't use any words, because, like, so many of those words are on your list. I want us to go a little bit farther in this verse and see if that's all that God's concerned about. It's just our naughty word list. He goes on to say, but only such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, and gives grace to those who hear. So it's not just about your list, however long your list happens to be. It's about the other 9,990 words that you say every single day, every single week, when you're in conversations with people. How are you doing with those words? Are those words building people up? Are those words the words that need to be spoken in that moment to meet the needs of the people around you? Are your words giving grace to those who hear? Sometimes we get so concerned with the 10 words on our list that we honestly forget about all the other thousands of words that we use all the time that don't meet God's expectations. And what's happening 
is your mouth and my mouth is incredibly unwholesome even though you said no swear words because the words you're using are not meeting the standards and expectations of God. Sometimes it's just better for us to be quiet. It's definitely better for us to slow down and think about what we're saying. Is it building up those around us? Is it the best word for the moment? Is it giving grace to those who hear? So let's do a couple of practical things to, to close up. Let's prepare for battle. So what do we do tomorrow so that we put on our new self? How do we make sure that we're ready to fight in the morning? I have three suggestions. Number one, I want you to fight on your knees. This is a you God thing to some extent. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, pray and talk to the Lord about this situation. Talk to him about your heart. Before I knew I was even preaching this, the beginning of the year, I just feel like I want to work on my prayer life. So one of the things I'm doing is every morning, as soon as I get out of bed, I wake up and get out of bed, this is the first thing I pray about. I pray for my nasty heart. I want you, every morning when you wake up, pray for your nasty heart. Pastor Mike just said I have a nasty heart. The Bible says it. We all still struggle. There's still sin in your heart and mine. We need God every moment of every day to be continuing to change and to renew our hearts. So I encourage you, just wake up in the morning and just pray. Like I, <laughs> my wife makes fun of me for this. Well, she makes fun of me for lots of things, but here's another thing she makes fun of me for. It's like by my mirror in the bathroom, I'll actually check a box to make sure I prayed for that in the morning. Because I know if I have to check a box, and she's going to see it, and I'm going to see it, I'm going to do it. So when I wake up in the morning, I pray, I will actually check the box after I pray to make sure I do it. Here's just a suggestion about how habits work. If you want to start something new in your life, connect it with something you already do. I get up every single morning. You do too, right? I get up every morning, and when I do, I pray for my heart. So I've just connected something I want to start doing with something I know I will do. Now I'm much more likely to do it and I add my nerd box on the side of my mirror and I have to check it, and now I'm good to go, okay? So I wake up and I pray for that. When I go into the shower, I pray for my wife and my kids. When I walk in the door of this building, I pray for you in this ministry. I have certain things I try to make a pattern and a habit in my life to help me. Fight on your knees. Secondly, pick up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Have the word of God play a major role in your day-to-day -day life. I don't want to set up, you need to do this for an hour, you need to do that for a half hour. I'm not going to create some new way where you have to meet some expectations. That's not it at all. In the same way, every single day you choose to eat food and you have hunger, have an awareness of your spiritual hunger every day. Some of you need to spend time with God in the morning, in his word. If so, find a way to do it. Some of you need to do it in your car. For me, I need a little in the morning, I need a little in the afternoon, I need a little in the evening. It doesn't take long for me to feel like I'm wandering from this pursuit of God. So I need a little bit of God's word all the time throughout the day, just like I need food. So pick up your sword of the spirit. Finally, fight with your battalion. Fight with your battalion. You're not designed to fight this battle on your own. If you find yourself all by yourself and you're standing in a field, a spiritual field where no one's around to help you, pray for you or fight beside you, you are gonna get taken out. In your head, you can think of faces and names of people that aren't here anymore. They maybe don't walk with the Lord anymore. They didn't fight with their battalion. They got pulled off to the side and the enemy takes out the loner. Don't be a loner. 
Find your group, find your crew, find your friends. We have groups on the wall for you to choose from if you need to find your battalion and find your people. We also have some groups out there that we call support groups. For some of you, you're already in a really tough spot in life and you're like, Pastor Mike, I don't even know how I'm gonna make it through today or tomorrow. This sounds like too much. For some of you, your battalion needs to be a group that just is going to nurture and take care of you for a while. One of those is a group that we have called Life After Divorce. Our Life After Divorce group is for people who have found themselves on the other side of divorce. They didn't expect to be there. They didn't plan to be there. They don't want to be there. They never got married thinking they would be there, but nevertheless, they are there. We wanna make sure that you are loved. You are just as loved by God today as before you got divorced. So here's a group for you where we can support and help you grow in Christ in a place you never expected to be. Starting in March, they're starting, a, they're starting a 13 sessions of what's called Divorce Care, which is this great material that was put together by some great leaders. If this interests you at all, all the details are there, also on the wall, I encourage you to do it. I encourage you to find your battalion. So I wanna remind you of this one more time before we take off. Here's a thought I want to leave you with is you were made by an infinite God for an infinite God. You were made with wisdom, with intentionality, and with unquenchable desires by an infinite God. You will only get those desires meet by that infinite God. So tomorrow morning, fight on your knees, pick up your sword of the spirit and find your battalion, find your people. Let me pray for you. Father, you are so good. And we do not stand here because of anything we've done. We don't stand here because we made ourselves right in your eyes. You have made us right in your eyes through Jesus, our living hope, our redemption, the one who is here present with us. You are such a good God. And with great thankfulness, we come into your presence and ask that you give us a heart to pursue, a heart to fight, recognizing that the new self is what you've called us to live in and live out. We ask for your help. In your name, amen. Once again, Thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.